Welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. and I am one of the cardiothoracic surgery fellows at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Sadhu Gadrin about the evaluation and management for tracheobronchomalacia. Dr. Gadrin serves as Chief of Thoracic Surgery and Interventional Pulmonology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Dr. Gadrin, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Absolutely. One of my favorite topics. Let us start with a case presentation. A 58-year-old woman with history of asthma, GERD, and hypertension presents to your clinic with progressive cough. Over the past year and a half, she has had respiratory infections, frequently requiring hospital admission and occasionally ICU care. She describes a lifelong cough, which has worsened in the past year, now becoming more constant and embarrassing. Despite being on multiple bronchodilators and mucolytics, she has had asthma exacerbations and respiratory infections virtually every month. She is no longer able to keep her job as a receptionist due to her constant cough and frequent hospitalizations. She is referred to you because during her most recent hospital admission, she underwent bronchoscopy and the intensivist noticed tracheal collapse. What are important considerations and details in a patient's history and physical that are suggestive of tracheobronchomalacia? Additionally, what other diagnoses should we consider in the differential? finding of a very, very persistent and paroxysmal cough, sometimes worsening over time, is is something that should raise concern for the presence of tracheobronchomalacia, especially if other more commonly identified um, conditions such as asthma, reflux, chronic bronchitis, COPD, um, have been addressed or investigated and possibly even treated. for a patient like this, this story of having the cough be actually, frankly, embarrassing and making it hard for her to carry out her normal activities, work, going into a movie theater or uh, going to church. These are things that we hear very commonly from patients that have severe TBM. Um, Other things that are important to pick up on somebody's history if they don't tell you directly Um, you should ask them would be what their exercise capacity is, how much shortness of breath they might have, and what does that shortness of breath potentially prevent them from doing. A lot of the patients that we see present to our clinic with really significant TBM will tell you that they have a hard time even standing up through the entirety of their shower because they get so short of breath. So we're looking for a pretty significant limitation of um, activity due to symptomatology. The constellation that we're seeing in this particular patient where not only does she have a very bad cough, but she also has recurrent infections um, is something that might increase your sensitivity for picking up TBM if you were to consider it. But of course, you also have to include on that differential things that can cause recurrent infections such as um, immune deficiencies. So we often will check IgG levels on these patients. Um, the um, overall severity of her presentation 
is something that's important to note as well because sometimes somebody gets a bronchoscopy for some other reason and incidentally patients are noted to have significant collapse and those patients end up getting referred to us for evaluation but on questioning the limitation um, of activity or the overall impact on their quality of life is not all that significant and quantifying that is important meaning you shouldn't just treat the patient because of the way the picture looks, the bronchoscopy or the CT scan, but rather what the impact of that anatomic derangement on their symptoms actually is. Based on this patient's clinical scenario, how would you proceed with your workup? Uh, we would go ahead and repeat a bronchoscopy here so that we can take uh, measurements at the standard locations uh, that, that we um, would partic uh, usually do. So taking a look at the cervical trachea, that stretch above the thoracic inlet from the cricoid down, um, taking a look at the proximal trachea, thoracic trachea, and then the distal thoracic trachea, and then both main stems, tracking all the way down to the distal left and the bronchus intermedius. And when I say we assess this, it is during uh, mild sedation and with forced expiratory maneuvers. So we take a look at the uh, condition of the airway with just normal respiration and then we coach the patient to take a deep breath in and then force out the breath as hard as they possibly can. And by doing that, we can get a sense of what the difference is between the size of the trachea on full inspiration or the size of the bronchus on full inspiration and what it looks like when they are um, increasing their intrapleural pressure and possibly creating collapse. The other thing that's useful at the time of the bronchoscopy is to take a look at the more distal um, extent of the malacia, meaning does it go into the lobar or segmental or sub-segmental uh, bronchi? Um, those smaller and smaller branches of the uh, airway become more difficult for us to, to do anything about, and it's good to note that at the time of the bronchoscopy. In addition, while we used to think that there was excellent concordance between bronchoscopy and CT scan, we know that that sometimes is not the case. So we do get a dynamic airway CT scan where essentially the patient will repeat the forced expiratory maneuver so that you can compare an expiratory series versus the inspiratory series. And that helps us get more precise actual uh, transverse airway um, measurements and also uh, a little bit more quantifiable um, sense of what the degree of collapse is because they can actually trace the airway circumference on both inspiratory and expiratory series and calculate a collapsibility index. Um, in addition to that, um, we generally run some questionnaires that look at both cough-related quality of life as well as overall quality of life with regard to uh, respiratory conditions and then we put patients through standard pulmonary function testing and a six-minute walk test to assess their functional uh, capacity. Okay um, so this patient undergoes dynamic flexible bronchoscopy and that does show severe malacia in the mid and distal trachea. Additionally there's severe collapse in the right main stem, distal BI and left distal left main stem as well. This is confirmed also with a dynamic CT, as you mentioned, uh, which shows near total collapse in the mid and distal trachea on expiration. 
a 95% collapse seen in, in the right main stem, BI, and left main stem. Her PFTs show a mildly reduced FVC and FEV1. The FEV1 and FEC ratio is normal. Her DLCO is mildly reduced, and on a six-minute walk test, she is able to walk 700 feet. Now that the diagnosis is established, are there additional measures that would help you decide whether a patient would benefit from tracheobronchoplasty? I think in this case, it sounds fairly, um, fairly well linked that her symptomatology is caused by her collapse, although um, that's a logical trap that one can fall into uh, without doing a stent trial. A stent trial helps establish the causation as best as possible. Um, a couple other things that you might want to make sure you check, um, we were alluding to them before, but we generally would do either a pH study or an impedance uh, study to assess the degree of reflux. We also would check, um, in this case, IgG levels because of the recurrent infection issue. And at the time of the bronchoscopy, hopefully have uh, obtained bronchoalveolar bronco lavage to make sure that she isn't colonized or infected with any unusual pathogens. Uh, and finally, because of the cough, um, looking at her uh, laryngeal function, making sure she doesn't have vocal cord um, dysfunction would be uh, an important uh, step because all of those things potentially could be treated with a lot less of a, you know, a lot smaller hammer than what a surgical intervention on the airway would consist of. Suppose um, this patient underwent a stent trial and rather than having improvement in her cough or having um, improved exercise tolerance, she actually tells you that her cough worsened and she had increased sputum or no change. How would you um, interpret that stent trial result? Well, I think every, every case is a little bit different. Um, it's not uncommon actually for people to tell you that they have increased sputum because they finally are able to clear their secretions, whereas with the collapsing airway, they might have a cough, but the cough is ineffective because the, the secretions are retained within the airway and not actually um, be able to be brought up. So a lot of patients will say they have increased sputum, but that's generally a good thing. The cough being worse, and also you have to tease that out. Is this a sharp cough of somebody that has a foreign body sensation in their airway? If that's the case, then I think you need to try to subtract that from your analysis of whether they improved or not. If they say, yeah, I have a new cough, it's quite annoying, but my horrible barking cough, that seal-like cough that I had pre-stent pre is, is gone, then you need to help that patient understand that the new cough that they have is more than likely just a stent-related foreign body sensation and get a sense of whether they think that elimination of the more rumbly barking cough that they had beforehand uh, is worth whatever intervention you might pitch to them next. That being said, there are some cases where a patient will not have an improvement, they don't walk farther, they don't feel better, and in those cases we often will take the stent out and uh, try to manage them as uh, optimally um, through non-surgical means as possible. So uh, keeping on top of you know any uh, infections that they might have, um, making sure that they have a way to manage their secretions either with uh, medication and or 
uh, mechanical means like a flutter valve or a vest. Um, and if deconditioning or cardiac related uh, issues are at the root of some of the limitation of activity, then we would address those things as well. So some patients, you know, they have sort of a mixed presentation and a big component of what they have is on top of their TBM, which limits their activity, they're now deconditioned because they aren't doing anything. And in some of those patients, if they are too frail to undergo uh, consideration or to be considered for an airway uh, surgical intervention, we'll actually try to get them reconditioned and rehab with CPAP or BiPAP supporting their airway so that they can get on the uh, treadmill or the exercise bike and try to get some stamina back before they potentially have to undergo a uh, thoracotomy and intervention. Mm -hmm. So let's suppose in this patient that she undergoes a stent trial and she does complain of increased mucus formation but her cough is significantly improved and when you do repeat PFTs she actually is able to walk a further distance and her six minute walk test is a thousand feet. Um, she's interested in tracheobronchoplasty. Could you describe important technical aspects of tracheobronchoplasty? Definitely. The, um, the way we approach this, uh, usually if we have to do a very extensive amount of um, plication uh, or splinting of the back wall of the airway is um, through a right thoracotomy, entering the chest to enter space four. And um, once you enter the chest, um, with your long isolation either with a bronchial blocker, which is our common practice now, or a modified double lumen tube. Um, with the right lung down, you retract that out of the way and you incise the pleura on the back of the trachea from the thoracic inlet all the way uh, down. Um, you want to dissect all of the uh, tissue that is adherent to the posterior wall of the uh, airway but try not to do dissection around the lateral walls so as to avoid devascularizing the airway. Um, once the airway is completely dissected free and we get all the way down to the secondary carina with retraction um, across the midline and all the way down to the uh, distal bronchus intermedius just above the superior segment takeoff, we'll take some measurements of the airway. That helps us get a sense of in real life what our adjustment with the mesh will ultimately be. Then we size a mesh. Um, usually it's about a 20 or 30 percent decrease in the diameter, uh, that transverse diameter of the airway. But if you have a very big airway, a three and a half, four centimeter wide airway, tracheobronchomegaly, for example, then the amount of downsizing might actually be considerably more. So each case is a little bit different. Sometimes what we're trying to do is create tension in a transverse direction by downsizing the width of the mesh compared to the native airway. Sometimes we need to really preserve that width because it's already narrow and we need to create tension on a, in an axial direction, meaning uh, we take larger bites on the native airway than we would spacing out our rows of plication sutures on the, uh, on the mesh. Sometimes it's a combination of each, so there's a lot of individualization to the way that this mesh gets put onto the airway and sutured into place. Um, once you have the, the mesh picked out and you've, you've cut it to the correct uh, upside down Y shape, then you suture it in. We use permanent sutures, which are proline 
and typically do rows of four, um, and then um, space them about every anywhere from five to seven millimeters apart on the mesh, and maybe a little bit farther on the airway. Great. And um, are there any minimally invasive options for tracheobronchoplasty? Yeah, absolutely. There are um, a couple of different ways that that will approach us, and there are other groups as well that are really uh, leaders in this area. Um, robotically, I think, is the more feasible, minimally invasive approach. It has been described orthoscopically, but the robotic uh, platform allows uh, multiple sutures to be placed um, and allows a mesh-based tracheobronchoplasty, uh, similar to the open technique. Uh, in addition, the robot uh, has also been used to do tracheobronchopexy, so rather than place a uh, prosthetic mesh, polypropylene mesh on the back of the airway, actually the esophagus gets moved off the front wall of the spine and the um, posterior membrane of the trachea then can get sutured to the longitudinal ligament of the spine to create stability. So that's another option, especially a better option in a younger patient that is growing in whom you don't want to place a non-growing uh, piece of plastic. Great. Um, so this patient undergoes right thoracotomy for her tracheobronchoplasty, and she tolerates that operation well. She is successfully extubated and moved to the ICU for further monitoring. You leave a chest tube in place for drainage. Are there other important considerations in the postoperative management of this patient? Certainly, the you know there are risks um, with this operation. In fact, in you know the open series, nearly half the patients will have some complication uh, of some kind. Uh, luckily, most of those are minor complications, but still, there are a lot of um, potential pitfalls that patients can stumble into. So, the more common things that they can run into trouble with are you know all around. Uh, their breathing and secretion management. So making sure that they're on humidified oxygen and they have good pulmonary toilet, getting suction if necessary, but certainly making sure that they're out of bed and uh, getting chest PT when necessary, using a flutter valve, all those things are uh, important adjuncts uh, to their recuperation. Um, some patients, um, because of where we're working, you know, we're dissecting the the mediastinal structures, so we're obviously quite close to a lot of um, important vascular structures, but also the thoracic duct runs close to one of the areas of dissection, so you have to look at the chest tube out, but making sure that that's not chylus, that's not a common complication, but can happen uh, if you're not careful and you venture too far off the wall of the, uh, the airway. Um, also, we dissect the vagus nerve that runs on the backside of the um, trachea before it uh, joins the esophagus just around the carina. And traction on the right-sided nerve or even on the left side uh, from retraction with a ribbon retractor, you can damage the left recurrent laryngeal nerve, so either of those causing vocal cord dysfunction um, and consequent swallowing issues uh, are things that you have to watch out for. Even the absence, even in the absence of a recurrent nerve palsy, because of all the dissection on the, the vagus, but also uh, on the esophagus, many of these patients will have some degree of swallowing dysfunction, so we often will have the, uh, the speech and swallow uh, uh, 
uh, folks take a look at them and even get a formal video swallow if necessary before we let them take a regular dive. Great. Uh, so this patient um, does well, but on post-op day one, you notice her barking cough is gone. Unfortunately, her voice is also hoarse. Um, how do you approach this ma the management of this when it does occur? We generally would have the uh, ear, nose, throat folks take a look at her with a scope, and if the cord appears to be immobile, uh, then we can decide whether it would need to be medialized in there. If they're having a hard time with uh, swallowing and clearing secretions, then uh, um, a early medialization procedure, injection of the cord would be preferred. In some patients, they actually are swallowing fine. The cord is not too far off the midline. They're able to phonate reasonably well. They're not getting short of breath because of the loss of air through the open, somewhat open glottis. And in those patients, uh, sometimes we just give it some time and, and over uh, you know, a few weeks, the cord function returns. Uh, it's pretty unlikely that during the course of this operation, you would actually have cut the recurrent nerve, but it's more of a, either a traction or a pressure injury to the nerve that uh, can lead to the vocal cord dysfunction. Great. Um, so the rest of her recovery is fairly uneventful. She has her chest tube removed on post-operative uh, day two, uh, her epidural and Foley are removed on post-operative three, and after evaluation by the ENT colleagues um, who noticed that her vocal cords are functioning properly, um, she improves with time, is evaluated by the speech and language pathologist, and able to tolerate a soft diet. Eventually, she's discharged home on hospital day six after working with physical therapy. When do you typically see these patients in follow-up, and what is a long-term surveillance strategy um, for these patients? We'll generally see a patient uh, anywhere from two to three weeks after discharge. Um, a lot of patients that are coming from out of state might not want to stay quite as long, so we'll bend the rules a bit and see them a bit sooner than that, you know, within one to two weeks after discharge. That way they can uh, return home. Um, at that initial visit, uh, we just sort of make sure the general post-operative issues are taken care of, that their pain's under control, that they haven't been having fevers or coughing up anything unusual, that their incision's healing the way you would expect, uh, and that in general their trajectory of symptomatic relief is continuing, although they generally will have some ups and downs. Um, for somebody that has a really terrible cough is their primary complaint, as this uh, patient does. Um, they often feel markedly better by that first post-operative visit um, because the cough essentially goes away uh, as soon as the airway is stabilized. For a patient that has dyspnea as their primary complaint, because they've been, been relatively inactive in bed for almost a week uh, or so, it may take a few weeks for them to kind of regain their uh, exertional capacity. Um, I tell every patient that, you know, it might be two or three months of real work on their own at home before they realize the full benefit of the operation as they recondition themselves and heal um, from the surgery. That being said, we would 
see a patient three months after their operation and at that visit we would obtain another dynamic airway CT scan, do their questionnaires, their quality of life questionnaires again, put them through a six minute walk test so we can compare it with their stent results and also with their preoperative results and pre-stent results and then uh, also get pulmonary function testing. Uh, subsequent to that, they would get that same uh, battery of evaluations on a yearly basis. If a patient has any problems or they have anything unusual, you know, they report that they're coughing up blood or they're starting to get more episodes of tracheitis or bronchitis, in those patients we often will add um, a functional bronchoscopy to the evaluation of those follow-up visits just to make sure that there aren't uh, signs of for example, cervical progression of the disease above the area of the repair, or that there isn't exposed mesh or some other technical um, complication. Uh, we expect that the vast majority of patients that are selected with a stent will do really well with this operation, and upwards of 80% of the patients will have both anatomic uh, considerable anatomic improvement, but more importantly, considerable symptomatic um, relief. When we look at that tracking out over years, we know that even going out to five years, independent of, or despite the fact that patients could potentially remodel their airway for the worse, uh, we have good stability tracking out past the five-year mark, and uh, the vast majority of those patients, even at five years, independent of any concomitant diseases like COPD that might be progressive, those patients also symptomatically have relief. So it's a good durable uh, surgical intervention. Um, so in the carefully selected patient, it's certainly better than any endoscopic technique that we currently have. Um, there are efforts to use energy to create um, positive remodeling of the back wall, whether it's laser or argon plasma coagulation. But I would consider those as well as any um, bioengineered stenting um, to help remodeling over time as uh, lesser options for a patient who otherwise could undergo a big surgical procedure. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Ingadron, for those insightful comments. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Great.